0: I looked at the passages in today's readings, and uh, while they're all interesting and true and good, they're from God's word. But I've always been intrigued with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and the job that he was sent to do. And in this time of the year, on many occasions, we're called to read about passages of John the Forerunner and Jesus' baptism. And so I decided to pick a passage about John the Forerunner, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which I will read to you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Blessed are you, Lord, the great God, for the testimonies of the prophets, we bless you, for the statutes of your law, we bless you, for the gospel of Christ and the witness of the apostles, we bless you, O glorious God. Grant to us the spirit of your glory and the brightness of your presence, that we might read your word and understand, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The first thing the Bible does, and here in the Gospel of Mark and most other places as well, is to make a man or a woman take serious, a serious view of life. C.S. Lewis once wrote that he'd like to take his Christianity the same way he took his whiskey. Neat. Straight. Well, that's what you get in the Gospel of Mark. You get it straight. You get it right between the eyes, right at the beginning. <clears throat> what we get is a momentous development in the history of the world a breaking in of God into the life of man, an appearance of the Lord God in the world in the life of a single human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And for what purpose? To bring, to provide, to forgive, bring the forgiveness of sins. This is the presupposition of everything here. This is the problem that God's coming into the world is designed to solve. This is a question for which Jesus is the one and only answer. What is, it to, be, what is to be done with my sin? How am I to be rid of them how may I escape God's righteous judgment and my sinful life? How may I find forgiveness? John came baptizing, we read in verse 4. And whatever else we may say about the baptism of John, it was plainly a symbol of cleansing from sin. Water is a universal agent of cleansing. No people anywhere in the world can get clean without water. There were washings in the Old Testament, and every one of them was a cleansing. There were ritual washings washings in Judaism of that day, not quite like John's, but washings nonetheless. And they too represented the removal of impurity. The very first time we hear being done in the gospel is men receiving ceremonial baths. Why? It's because they knew themselves dirty, not physically, but spiritually. Now, some ritual washings of the Old Testament and first first century Judaism removed only ceremonial impurity. There was no moral stain or sin involved. You had a discharge, or you touched something impure, or you birthed a child, or some such thing. You couldn't avoid that kind of impurity and there was nothing morally sinful about it. But John's baptism didn't concern that kind of merely ceremonial impurity. His baptism had to do with our sin, our moral stain, our moral failure, our failure to be and to do what God requires his creation to be. We know this because John's baptism is described as a baptism unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Indeed, did you notice in verse four that John preached or proclaimed a baptism of repentance? Repentance was John's message reduced in a word. And for a prophet to preach or proclaim repentance as his message means that this is the very thing that God is summoning men to do. When Jesus in verses 14 through 15 proclaims the same message, when he began his ministry, it's clear that repentance and faith, for faith is always part of true repentance, are the means by which sinful human beings lay hold of the new thing that God is doing, by which they enter the kingdom of God, that has come into the world and by which they embrace the good news. Redemption in Jesus' work. We have nothing to do with that. We cannot increase it or decrease it. Repentance is our part. It is what we are summoned to do. Repentance in the Bible, you know, means a turning away from a way of life that is displeasing to God and embracing his will for our, for our living It presupposes our way of life needs to change. That we are bad, evil, wicked, and need to be good. That we are dead and need to be made alive. And forgiveness of sins suggests the same thing. We need to be forgiven because we have offended God by what we have thought and said and done and by what we have failed to say and think and do in the Old Testament repentance an idea that occurs very often means returning to the Lord with one's whole being with every, in everything in every part of one's life taking the Lord absolutely seriously there is no doubt Whatsoever about the burden of John's ministry. The people fell, if you will, under its spell. The people who were convinced by what John preached, the people who submitted to his baptism, all did the same thing they confessed their sins, they admitted that they were at fault, that they were sinners against God and man, and that they needed to be forgiven. They learned from John that this honesty about themselves was a prerequisite of their sharing in the salvation that was to come into the world. And turning away from sin, turning to God was precisely what God expected of them and what his salvation required of them. The good news was for the penitent and for them only. From the very beginning, from its outset, Christianity was the religion of the broken heart just as Israel's true faith, the faith of Abraham and Moses, had always depended upon the broken and contrite heart in the ancient epoch. The story of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brought to mankind, which is the story of this gospel, does not begin in comfort or in self-confidence or in impertinence. On the contrary, the gospel begins in dismay, in disgust with oneself, in the recognition that one is desperately needy and needs God to forgive him. He needs God to forgive a great deal. John the Baptist was the promised forerunner of their Messiah. He spoke of the one who would come after him the thong of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. But what specifically did John do as the forerunner of the Messiah? He convinced his hearers that they were sinners, that they needed to confess their sins and repent of them. He prepared the Messiah's way by bringing people to the conviction of their sin and leading them to repentance. And as the story unfolds, the necessity of this as a first step becomes clear. The gospel, of Mark, is an account of those who received Jesus Christ and those who rejected him. Those who refused Jesus were always invariably the self-righteous. They did not believe that they had sins to confess, or if they did, they did not believe that God's forgiving them would be of such great consequence they certainly never imagined that getting rid of their sins would require the single most stupendous event in the history of the world the incarnation of god the son and his terrible death on the cross but those who believed in jesus and became his followers were precisely those whose hearts were broken by their own moral failure, and by their great moral need. As Jesus himself would later say, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He meant, of course, not that there were people so healthy that they didn't need a doctor, or those who were so righteous, that they didn't need to repent. He meant rather that there were many people who thought themselves healthy and thought themselves righteous in the nature of the case, and he and his salvation would be of no interest to them. Christ assumed that men are evil, bad. If you don't share that conviction, and in particular, if you don't share it about yourself, you can't get started with Jesus or the gospel. He was the first to admit that and to explain that. And the fact is powerfully stated as a presupposition, as an assumption at the very beginning of the gospel of Mark. You come to Jesus on your knees, not standing on your feet. You come aware that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness, but you don't come at all. What brings men to Christ is a sense of defeat and a sense of a very great need. What a strange and colorful man John was. His appearance would have seemed as strange to his contemporary as it sounds to us today. He lived apart in the wilderness. but what a preacher, and what a messenger. It was a message. These were sermons that people were not hearing from their rabbis. It was a message that one would think would not be popular at all. It was a message about sin and about their sinfulness. These were Jews, after all, who came to hear John. They were the people of God, the children of Abraham, But John was saying that their vaunted status was not enough. Not even that they had to confess their sins, repent and turn to God, making that repentance, that turning clear by submitting to John's baptism. No, the great existential question posed by John's prologue and by John's preparation of the way for Jesus is this. Do you think Are you convinced that you need the Lord to come from heaven to deal with your sins and to save you from them? All that Jesus did to perform that task, we don't even know. It brings to mind a hymn I learned several years ago, a line. What Jesus has done for this soul of mine. The half has never been told. Take the sin that has always stood for all sins. It does in our culture. It does in every culture from time immemorial. You'd think that Elder George and I had gotten together it was a Sunday school lesson and this sermon. The sin of lust. So much and for so long has this been the representative sin that when we use the term immoral, unmoral, unrighteous, when we use the terms we think and tend us to think only of this one sin, he's immoral, he's a lustful person. Dorothy Sayers recollects after making a remark about the seven deadly sins that a young young man replied to her, I did not know there were seven deadly sins. Please tell me the names of the other six. (laughs) But of course, in our day, in our pornographic culture, a very large portion of the population can hardly believe any longer that lust remains a sin at all, much less a deadly one. What do we think of lust? Is it a deadly sin or so scarcely a sin at all? The English journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge, was working and on trip to India. And at a point in his career, as was his custom, he went down to the river to take an evening swim. When he got to the river, he saw a woman there. (coughs) Excuse me. In a letter to his father, he wrote what happened next. She came to the river and took off her clothes and stood naked. Her body, her brown body caught by the sun. I suddenly went mad. There came to me the dryness in the back of my throat, that feeling of wild unreasonableness which is called passion. I darted with all the force of swimming I had to where she was and then nearly fainted. For she was old and hideous and her feet were deformed and turned inwards and her skin was wrinkled and worst of all, she was a leper. You've never seen a leper, I suppose, until you have seen one You do not know the worst of human ugliness can be, he writes. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask, and the next thing I knew was that I was swimming along in my old way in the middle of the stream, yet trembling. It was a kind of lesson I needed. When I think of lust, now I think of this lecherous woman. Oh, if only I could paint. I'd make a wonderful picture of a passionate boy running after that and call it the lust of the flesh. You see, Muggridge's point, that old, withered, disgusting woman became an image of his own heart that had lusted after her before he knew who she was and what she was. The object of his lust showed him the nature of it ugly, sick, disgusting There are, you see, two kinds of people in the world, and only two. There are those who would laugh at Mugridge's story, amused at his disappointment to find an ugly woman instead of a beautiful one. But one would find no scandal, nothing ugly, nothing fearful, nothing repulsive in his desire, in his wanting, in his passion. Then there are those who understand precisely what he meant, when he spoke of the old woman as an ironic symbol of lust and as consequence of lust, as a desire that is itself leprous, ugly, deformed, repellent, and inhuman. Lust as a desire that must be deeply offensive to God, as the willful repudiation of all of man's higher and nobler instincts as a complete divorce of sex from love and commitment, as the objectification and dehumanization of other persons, simply as the instruments of one's own pleasure. I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, among those many who poured out of Jerusalem and other nearby cities to hear the preaching of John among those multitudes were brought to the conviction of their sin that were a very great number, perhaps mostly men, who confessed that sin first and foremost and agreed in their hearts with John and with the word of God that lust of that kind was evil and that those who gave way to it desperately needed to be forgiven. Or take another sin that we are all guilty of. A lot of the time, that stains and corrupts everyone's life, whether or not he or she will admit it. The sin of unworthy, selfish, unkind, and foolish speech. Take to heart this self-assessment from Alexander White. A godly man used to say when he returned home from a night of table talk (coughs) that he would never accept such an invitation again. So remorseful does such... Nights always leave him, and so impossible did he find it for him to hold his peace and to speak only at the right moment and only in the right way. And Without his holiness, I have often had his remorse, and so I am quite sure, of many of you. There's no table we sit at very long that we do not more or less ruin, either by ourselves or someone else. We either talk too much and thus weary and disgust people, (coughs) or they weary and disgust us. We start ill-considered, unwise, untimely or inappropriate topics. We blurt out our rude minds in rude words. We push aside our neighbor's opinion as if both he and his opinion were worthless, and we thrust forward our own wisdom (coughs) as if wisdom would die with us. We do not put ourselves in our neighbor's place. We have no imagination in conversation and no humility and no love. We lay down the law. We instruct people who could buy us at one end of the market and sell us at the other if you thought us worth the trouble. It's easy to say grace. It's easy to eat and drink in moderation and with decorum and refinement. But it is our tongue that so ensnares us to command the tongue, to bridle and guide and moderate and make just the right use of our tongue is a conquest that no one, that not one in a thousand has made. That's from White's The Walk Character and Conversation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I guarantee that there were multitudes among John's avid followers who, when they confessed their sins, confessed sins of the tongue, sins that under conviction of John's preaching had begun to bother them greatly. They now remembered those sins of speech very clearly, and the memory made them ashamed of themselves and disgusted with themselves. They felt impure, dirty. They knew for certainty that they had sinned against God and needed his forgiveness more than they needed anything else in the world. What did the forerunner do to prepare the way for the Lord? What message was he sent ahead to bring concerning the one who was coming after him? What did the voice calling in the wilderness actually say? He said, You people are a brood of vipers. You're sinners. Comprehensively, deeply, and you've forgotten the most fundamental fact about yourselves. You're acting like you're not great sinners when you are. You are sinners before God and before man, and you need his forgiveness. Because once a man or a woman was convinced of that fact, he or she was ready to receive the welcome Lord. We might think that a message such as John's, a message about man's sin and guilt, would be too depressing to be popular. People would be turned off to hear themselves condemned by the great desert preacher. But the truth is intoxicating, and this truth is what opens the ears to the good news. John's was a powerful message because it opened people's eyes to reality as it actually is and opened their hearts to see the world and and themselves as lying in sin and needing salvation. But it did so while at the same time proclaiming that salvation was coming. Most people in John's day and most people in our day can't be made to face the facts the truth about themselves and the result is that they remain forever cut off from the most wonderful news. The most wonderful news that has ever been announced and proclaimed in this world. They never see Christ for who and what he is because thinking themselves well, they have no thought whatsoever that they need for a doctor. John's message, honest, searching, And necessary as it was, in fact, created such a stir that King Herod Antipas feared his influence with the people and had him arrested. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that as well, as the gospel writes. That's how powerful an honest reckoning with sin is. It changes people. It created a movement. This simple fact that people came to deal honestly with themselves about their thoughts, their words, and their deeds, it changed the world in Jesus' day, and it has changed the world ever since, whenever there have been large numbers of people who have agreed (coughs) that they are sinners and desperately need God's forgiveness. To quote White, once again sin was his errand in this world and it was his only errand he would never have been in the world at all either preaching sermons or doing anything else but for sin he could have done everything else for us without coming down into this world at all everything else but take away our sin And thus it is that our sin is the true key with which to open up all he ever said, all he ever did, while he was with us in the world. The gospel, the good news, is the announcement that the appearance of the Son of God in the world and the establishment of his kingdom but that kingdom is for repenting sinners and for them only. And they and they only will recognize Jesus for king and the savior that he is. No wonder Mark begins with sinners confessing their sin. No wonder G.K. Chesterton should describe the Bible's doctrine of the universal sinfulness of mankind as the most cheerful doctrine he knew. It means that in the Bible can one at last, last find the truth about themselves, difficult as that truth may be to face, and then find the real su- solution to his true problem. Eric Fromm, one of the most influential advocates of modern and still wildly popular psychological theory of self-love and self-affirmation and self-confidence, once admitted that were the Bible's doctrine of original sin, that all men are sinners seriously and inadvertently sinners offending God from the beginning of their lives to the end of their lives, if that doctrine were true, Fromm said, his own theory would be, must be false. Fromm taught people to find salvation within themselves, people who were honest about their sinful hearts and lives know that they will never find salvation there, Many in Jesus' own day liked themselves and desired themselves too much to admit their radical need, their desperate need for their forgiveness. And as a result, I lost my way. And as a result, favored as they were to be In the world when Jesus, Son of God, made his appearance as a man, they missed him. Unbelievable, but true. They were blind to the astonishing thing that happened and the glorious one that had come among them. I wish for all of us nothing so much as that we should all feel the true guilt and true weight of our sins. Disgusting ugly, shameful that they are. Not that we might be miserable, that we might be the happiest men and women in the world. It is the acknowledgement that your own wickedness, honestly from the heart, that opens your eyes to hear the good news. That confession, that repentance is like a pair of magical spectacles, with which, once you put them on, you can suddenly see what you never saw before, the road that leads to God and to heaven and Jesus himself standing at the head of that road. Take to heart yourselves the great fact that the forerunner of the Messiah considered his principal calling to convince men and women that they were sinners that needed forgiveness. Only then would they be ready to receive and welcome the Son of God. Let not the conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream, all the fitness he requires, is to feel your need of him. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your word. So much uh, that it teaches us, and, and, and to look through, as we have in the last several weeks, the birth of our Savior, the coming of John, the forerunner, preaching repentance, people led by your spirit to come in confession of sin and know and admit their need. That we come to you, Lord, we pray, in the same way. Take us, mold us, that we might indeed be more conformed to the image of our Savior, that we might walk by your spirit, Spirit in newness of life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.